Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Jack Ahern to talk about his book, Design with Nature, on Cape Cod and the Islands. Jack is a professor emeritus of landscape architecture at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Jack, thank you very much for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. My pleasure, Brian. So before we begin, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Happy to. Uh, yes, I'm a landscape architect. Um, I spent um, 95% of my career in academia, uh, where I was a professor at UMass Amherst for 35 years. But I also kept my finger um, in the consulting world, uh, consulting with design offices and some private clients. And I tended to develop a focus on ecological landscape design, working with native plants and native plant communities. Um, So the idea for this book came about um, around 10 years ago, my wife and I bought a house on the Cape. We had been vacationing there for a lot of our lives and finally had an opportunity to get a place. And we moved uh, into the Cape, into the house and started spending more time there, obviously. And I became quite alarmed and shocked at what was happening in the practice of landscape architecture, which was becoming very very standardized, very uh, resource intensive, uh, basically about um, 180 degrees away from a sustainable direction. So I saw things, people spending a lot of money, a lot of professionals involved in helping people spend that money. uh, And the results were very conventional and very resource intensive. And that is a particular concern on the Cape and islands. 
because this is a uh, unique, unique and uniquely fragile uh, ecosystem. The, the Cape and Islands were formed from glacial deposits after the last ice age. And the soils that were left behind by the glacier are extremely sandy, which creates conditions of low nutrients and low water holding capacity. And in that environment, plant communities have developed that were adapted to those stressful growing conditions. And those plant communities, I would argue, um, have a distinct character because of the stresses that they endure. They have physiological adaptations to retain moisture. They have slower growth rates. The plants are smaller. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And they often have um, other adaptations to reduce um, water loss, which, which have visual uh, characteristics. For example, um, plants with glossy foliage like uh, northern bayberry are often um, valued because of their, their visual texture. Uh, but that texture is really the plants, <coughs> the plants attempt to uh, reduce moisture loss to the leaves. So, so this idea of, uh, of stress is, is a lot to do with the nature of the Cape and, you know, the weather beaten landscape, um, the stunted plants, the, the, um, the small diminutive forest, <clears throat> that's all a part of, arguably a part of the um, natural history of, of Cape Cod. Uh, and, you know, since the early 20th century, Cape Cod has been developed as a resort area and it has brought, you know, tremendous development pressure. And unfortunately, the people that have been coming recently um, are kind of falling into the um, the standard practice of landscape design that, you know, I say it could be anywhere. Um, you know, it, it could be um, anywhere in the Northeast, you know, pick, pick your least favorite place and, and call it that if you want. Uh, I, I won't name any of those places my list but um so that's uh, yeah so i decided to write this book and uh it became a labor of love um because i was getting close to retirement and um there's a personal um quest for me to articulate not just the problem but to articulate a I think an ecologically based response to that problem by using native plants. Absolutely. And again, there's, there's quite a bit for us to try to cut. I don't think we could cover it all. Uh, you know, for example, the case studies you present are very, 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 and again, for everyone listening, unfortunately me describing, it's not going to help you. So I would recommend you actually go look at them. But what I do think, I think you and I could talk about was, you know, your your strategy you propose, but I did want to kind of back up. You mentioned the, and I think you refer to, I have it written down as landscapes of anywhere. And so again, I don't think that's a new concept in landscape design, but I, I guess I personally, I can't speak for everyone, did not think that that was an issue kind of 
with some place like the Cape. I think many people, when they hear the Cape, they know what you're talking about. And I think they have that identity in their mind. And so the question I was going to have that I think you started answering is, you know, this doesn't seem to be a new argument or issue there either. You have quite a few <laughs> very colorful quotes from people talking about this attack on the Cape. So the question I would have had for you is, you know, you said this came about 10 years ago. Do you feel like it's improving or is with the growth of development, it's getting worse, actually, that standardization? Sure. Um, I'd like to think it's improving. Um, and <clears throat> maybe, um, you know, my book has been out for a year, so I don't really think my book has a lot to do with it improving. Um, I'm not I'm not that naive. Um, I think it's really about the um, a related um, environmental crisis that I also write about in the book, which is um, the water quality crisis on, on the Cape. Um, because of this sand, as I explained, um, the, um, the waste disposal systems that people use for domestic waste, which are, which are known as septic systems, um, it turns out they're, they're not very good at removing nitrogen uh, from the effluent. So all, and most of the Cape is on septic systems, over 90% of all the houses. So this is a slow moving uh, disaster because the, the water from the septic systems goes into the groundwater. It moves slowly from the high points out to the bays and it pollutes the bays. And we're, we're seeing this in virtually every bay on the Cape, um, serious water quality problems. So that's a kind of a background mega problem that the Cape is addressing now. Um, every town on the Cape is building sewer plants um, to the tune of billions of dollars. Uh, the town I live in, Barnstable, just one town on the Cape. It is the biggest town, but uh, that town has a $1.4 billion plan to build sewers. So this has become very real and the this the septic and sewer problem is about 80% of the water quality problem the other 20% comes down to fertilizers and landscape and um and stormwater so that's really the the piece that i am aiming at to contribute to the solution um so that that's a part of it that these the native plants um do not need fertilizer. Therefore, they don't leach away excess fertilizer into the water. Uh, the native plants are adapted to to dry growing conditions, so they don't need irrigation. So this helps us to save the precious water that um, should be reserved for drinking water uh, instead of watering lawns. Um, and when, when you water lawns that are heavily fertilized, the fertilizer leaches down into the groundwater. So that's kind of the main motivation. Uh, but there is a, a movement for to celebrate the ecological character of many places. The, the native plant movement um, is flourishing around the country. And it really has to do with the argument that I that I try to make here, you know, that the plants that are native to a locale are part of the identity of that locale. And ob obviously, they should be used to reinforce and maintain that character. 
so it's a simple idea. I think what my book brings that is um, different from others is the uh, the focus on design uh, to, to not to tell to shame people with environmental guilt like look what you're doing you're you're destroying and polluting the landscape and etc cetera, etc cetera. but rather hey here's a different way to do it that can do the right thing and be beautiful and that's what i tried to um illustrate with the um with the case studies there's 19 case studies in the book um in in and a lot of them are publicly accessible so people can go and look at them and see for themselves. Absolutely. And again, same with the principles. Again, I, I, I wouldn't want to spend all, after, all of your time this afternoon quizzing you on all 11 of them. But again, I, I, I've, I'm not a landscape architect. I have spoken to a few. And it's funny because you make a good point that I think is pretty common in a lot of the literature. And that is, it seems like the greatest challenge is just public acceptance and education. You you make the case, you know, and I think, yeah, the lawns are the largest irrigated crop in the U.S. And then you mentioned there are quite a few plants that require no maintenance and are better. They just don't look like the typical uniform green grass, I think, that we see in magazines. And Yes. um, Yeah, the native plants uh, have a, you know, I'm, I'm sensitive to this and tuned into it. So I've, I find that they have a beauty that, um, that derives from, from the place and, and it's reinforced when you use those plants in designs and then you can see those same plants, um, looking similarly at, at any given time of year, whether it's the spring emergence of leaves or, the color of the fall or even the winter form with when we can pay attention to things like branching and bark color and other factors like that. So, yeah. And I think, um, you know, the, the title of the book, by the way, um, is, uh, is borrowed from, uh, my, my great professor, um, Ian McCarg, who started and led the, landscape architecture program at University of Pennsylvania. And um, I studied with him because I believed in his message. <coughs> Excuse me. And his his seminal book was called Design with Nature. And it was published in 1969 at the peak of the environmental movement. And it really kind of rocked the world um, and kind of opened people's eyes to the uh, the need for um, an ecological approach to landscape design. So, with uh, with great respect to McCarg, I, I adapted his title to uh, the title of my book, uh, and I feel that um, he's he's no longer with us, but I, I feel that he would approve with uh, with my message because um, I I get it, I understand it. Absolutely. And, you know, you make a good case for there's there's beauty and there's also functional reasons and there's also the sustainable aspect. Like you said, you know, fake grass takes a lot of water, takes a lot of fertilizer, which in terms, you know, you do make some very startling statistics that even I was not aware about, about the water issue, specifically in the Cape area. But I was wondering, again, this is a very vague question. I apologize. But, you know, you talk about a few times the importance of resiliency and biodiversity. 
you know, as you've mentioned, there is sort of a crisis that we can't ignore. And so, again, I know how open-ended that is, but could you maybe talk about the idea of biodiversity in landscape design a little more? Sure. Uh, you know, and it's a little ironic um, to to have to speak about that. Uh, not, not not from a question from you, but from in in my field, it's um, it's slowly becoming um, a widely accepted um, goal and important uh, value of everything that we do. You know, I think it's it's coming from the evolution and maturation of uh, environmental policy. The um, you know the the contemporary use of the word sustainability really started in the in the late 80s the word was around but it didn't it wasn't applied to um sustainable development um and since that time uh the you know sustainable development has become a policy for um lots of organizations you know architects are uh really took the lead um this is a good pun. They, they took the lead <laughs> with lead. Um, yes. You know, the Green Building Council kind of said, wait a minute, we architects need to be leading the sustainability business. And, you know, buildings are an important part of that. Um, so, you know, thank you, architects. And you you kind of jumped out way ahead of landscape architects when we were still arguing that sustainability was bad for business. Um, you know, we... We build golf courses, damn it, and uh, don't tell us about talk about sustainability or we'll be out of business. Um, and of course, that that was proven to be wrong. Um, and now a lot of professionals are, I think, very appropriately making their making their living out of doing demonstrating sustainability can be can be um, real and it can be beautiful. And you know that's the. That's the, the designer's part of the argument. But uh, back to biodiversity that you mentioned, I think this is one of the one of the factors that c- continually evolves within the, the discourse on sustainability and resilience. And certainly the United Nations that, you know, that does the important work of, you know, uh, global assessment of uh, sustainable development goals and and biodiversity, Um, you know, they have pushed the panic button that, you know, we are in the midst of a a great extinction of species globally. (coughs) The sixth great extinction might might be a little hyperbole, but I don't think so. I think it's very real. And we all depend on biodiversity a lot more than most of us can uh, even imagine. So it's a, it's an important um, factor and value to, to put into your work. It's it's one of the harder cells. Um, you know, on the Cape, people people are sensitive to water quality because it's a it's a recreationally oriented economy. You know, so whether people go to enjoy it or make money from it. Clean water is is important for for everybody's livelihood um, and and fun. Um, biodiversity less so. So it's that's part of an education of um, why should we? You know, it's and and there are certainly national slash international trends that are moving in the right direction. For example, um, pollinators. 
right? Ten years ago, um, you would you wouldn't have heard anything about uh, po- the pollinator crisis and pollinators. Oh, I get it. They they pollinate flowers, right? But now we've come to learn that there's a pollinator crisis, and it's not only uh, a crisis for agriculture, but for all forms of plant life. And uh, we need to plant in, to change this. We need to establish plants in our landscapes that can support pollinators. That's just one of the very um, kind of resonant ideas about um, sustainability. When when you can attach it to something that people um, kind of inherently feel good about, it's it's good marketing, right? You know, like. Um, when you talk about biodiversity, don't don't talk about snakes. You know, talk, talk about um, talk about warm fuzzy mammals or butterflies, right? And, and and then people people can get on board. So, a little bit of a marketing dimension, but I I believe it's um, it's a really core argument uh, that supports all of this. And if I could jump into one more issue here, Brian. Um, is a climate change. Um, you know, I was writing this book. Um, it took me about 10 years to, to finish it. Um, and, you know, things change over 10 years. And the, uh, the discourse over climate change certainly has changed a lot in the last decade. Um, so that caused me to address that. Um, it's not a, a focus of the book, but I, I think I touched on it in many places that um, by by using native plants and plant communities, um, you not only um, support the biodiversity, but these plants are going to be much more resilient against climate change. And on the Cape, the reason for that is that it's already a stressful environment. So, you know, imagine a plant like um, American beach grass sitting out on a dune um, in the, in total sun, um, getting sprayed by, by salt spray, uh, growing in pure sand with virtually no capacity to hold water. You know, that's a, that's a stressful growing environment. And, and those plants can can go year after year through drought after drought because they have adapted um, to those conditions. The beach grass knows that it has to put down really deep roots uh, to get those little bits of water that they'll need. And there are other species also, including pitch pines that are adapted to fire. That's a common occurrence in landscapes that are sandy. Um so these, a lot of these plants, uh, I say they are pre-adapted to climate change and they're very well positioned to, uh, to survive the future extremes that we're expecting and that we're uh, increasingly seeing every year, like, like droughts and intense rainfall. No, I appreciate all. And so one thing you had mentioned, you had said it a few times, was the idea about education and demonstration. And so, as I said, I, I don't want to take up all of your time today, you know, talking about all of your principles, but I think there's two that stuck out to me. I, I didn't mention this to you, and I didn't mean this as a surprise. I, I went to graduate school at UMass, and so when I walked to the architecture building, I often walked through the, the demonstration 
the garden there, and I don't know what it was really called. And so a, a former guest that was on the show, uh, Fred and Fred Delcombe and James Ellis, they had talked about, and again, you could speak to it too with your academic background. They were in charge of uh, the campus landscaping, and for the longest time in academia, you had very beautiful, pristine lawns. There was no prairies. There was no wild grass. And so it's, it's, it was a slow grind, but they had mentioned finding success and setting up educational and demonstrated gardens, as well as making the case that, you know, it's a lot less money and time to deal with them. And so you, one of your principles, you talk about, you know, inspiring and educating. And so is, are you proposing literally large public demonstrations of kind of, I'll call them prairies, you know, not as uniform grass. Is that what you propose with that? Um, well, well, thanks for that question. I think um, something I feel pretty strongly about. Um, there are actually among the, the case studies, there are three of them that are small scale demonstration projects. <coughs> One of them I designed um, and, and the other two are were designed and installed by uh, by nonprofit environmental groups, uh, both in all three are in highly visible locations. Um, all three of them have signage on site so that in it's it's a both um, it's both a confrontational strategy um, you know like you walk down the street in Chatham which is a kind of a conservative Cape Cod looking town and you see in the middle of town you see this this meadow like you know what is that well then they have it's the the Chatham uh, Trust the conservation trust and they have um, a sign that says yeah we're we're growing native plants because they're a part of the character of the Cape and they're important for this and that um, so that's that's one um, straightforward way to do this Um you know, outside of my book, right? Uh, you don't need, and and by having the interpretation there, um, people can learn from it. So, uh, the one that the one that I did, we we put uh, two interpretive panels, and we on them we included uh, QR codes so that people who are interested can just can just um, you know scan that code and go to the website where there's all kinds of information about the species the particular species their characteristics and, and so forth so that's that's one way to get it into the discussion and then when the, when you have these demonstration um, sites you can uh, add them into garden tours and and hold events where you have programs where you can tell people about this idea and you know kind of in in the flesh to look at the plants and and point to them and you can do those in the when things are really exciting in the middle of the summer and you have flowers and pollinators all over the place so that's a that's a pretty powerful tool um the large scale landscapes um yeah I, absolutely i think that's a part of it and that's why i um included uh projects that are already built that i feel that that show that like the um the poly hill arboretum on martha's vineyard and the um tea ticket park in falmouth uh that was a former uh driving range uh and they it was a low budget park and the designer said hey let's 
let's just grow native plants here because they don't we don't need to bring in a million dollars worth of topsoil we can we can we can plant in the the crummy sand that was that was underneath this driving range and and it worked and it's it's beautiful so um i think the you know as a part of um changing people's perception um the the pilot projects are really important and um yeah no, I agree. As I said to everyone listening, uh, take a look. Just not don't just listen to us talk about it. And so again, of course, we, I, w- I would love to talk about the other nine or ten we didn't talk about, but uh, the principles, not not case studies. But you had mentioned that you know this was what you've been working on for ten years, and it came out a year ago. And so you know, I guess the question is what uh, what has what's been occupying your time since then? You know, other projects on the rise. Uh, yeah. Um... Well, I've been on a little bit of a book tour on this, um, you know, as we're still kind of coming out of the pandemic and things aren't full blown. But I've given a number of talks to local groups and local bookstores. And the interview with you today is all part of kind of promoting promoting the book. So that's a part of it. Um, but, you know, as a retired um academic i'm not quite ready to um to hang up my spurs yet i want to do some new things and uh my new idea is couldn't really couldn't be farther away from this um it's the idea of um the issue of spontaneous plants in cities the kind of accidental nature that that comes in and grows in vacant lots and uh, ruins of buildings and abandoned parking lots. And, you know, um, most people would call these weed patches. Um, uh, but there's something interesting ecologically that happens in these weed patches. We can call them that um, because these plants are, you know, talk about stressful conditions. These plants are, really models of resiliency and some of them can even tolerate growing in polluted environments and some of those are even capable of removing toxins from the soil in those environments so when i look at all these factors i say whoa we we're not thinking creatively and constructively about this uh issue yet we're there seems to be a binary response, which is either I don't see it, I don't care, uh, I'm not going to do anything about it, or let's let's do something about it, which means kill it, kill everything, and and replace it with turf grass. And um, so Philadelphia, for example, is doing a lot of um, cleaning up abandoned lots and putting turf grass and split rail fences in them. And I get it that that stops people from uh, dumping trash in them. It stops crack dealers from setting up shop in the back or behind trees. And, you know, it's a complicated issue. Um, But I think there's room for some uh, creative, informed work to um, to intervene in these landscapes, not just to either uh, kill them or or abandon them but to work with them and to manage them for different purposes, for um, pollinator habitat, 
for um, phytoremediation to clean the soil um, and uh, and to look better just for people walking by that they can look better. So uh, I'm just getting started on this. Um, the Europeans are kind of the leaders in this. Um, the best work that I've found so far is in, um, in Paris and Berlin. And I'm going to try... This gives me an excuse to travel a bit and to um, to research, and I I like to kind of like this book. My my writing style involves um, thinking about uh, big big broad theoretical issues um, and kind of articulating those ideas, maybe proposing a new approach to those ideas, like I did in this book, uh, and then illustrating what others have done through case studies. So that's what I did in this book. And that's probably, if the other one comes to a book, that's likely what that will be as well. Oh, interesting. But, Maybe we'll talk about that someday. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, it's, it's the opposite of native plants, like yeah. <laughs> literally, but, um, you know, and I have mixed feelings about that because, um, you know, on, on the Cape, the, the native plants, it, it's not a lost cause it's it's still at a point where it could be turned around and, and moved into a different direction. When we look at some older cities, you know, especially European cities, um, nature has been so beat up and abused and manipulated over centuries that there's nothing left that is uh, remotely resembles the, the native vegetation. <clears throat> so it's a it's a new idea about a cultural landscape and thinking about how to um, how designers can intervene. That's what we do, right? We like to um, we like to make interventions, um, and um, I think there's a lot of work yet to be discovered um, in that area. I, again, sounds very interesting. I have to keep my eye out for that. Yeah, well, give me give me a couple of years. Okay? Right. <laughs> well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure, Ryan. And um, yeah, let me. Uh, are you in the in the Amherst area still, or I am not. No. Not. Well, nope. if you get back, let me know. I'll be happy to give you a tour. We we're we're very proud of our new landscape at the design building. Sorry, um, I have, no, I have to take you up on that sometime. Yeah, I would. I would happy to share that with you good <laughs> and for for everyone listening the book is designed with nature on cape cod and the islands thank you very much for listening and have a great day thank you brian my pleasure take care <laughs>